0: couple of announcements before we get started. I know it's tough to keep up with my schedule. It's tough for me to keep up with my schedule. We'll be um, leaving on Friday for Ukraine. And uh, this Sunday, Dan will be here to uh, teach on Sunday morning. And then uh, followed by the next Sunday by Charlie Clough. And then, on Wednesday nights, there will be the video series with uh, featuring Avi Lipkin, who is... Now, I have to say a few things about this video series. Avi Lipkin is a member of the Israeli Defense League. He was originally from somewhere in the northeast in America, moved to Israel in the early 70s, and uh, has lived over there. It's a very interesting testimony. I can't remember. A lot of it's covered in the first tape, but he... Uh, uh, he was brought up in a home, I think, his, his parents and grandparents. Many of his family were killed. I don't know about his parents, but many of his family were killed in the Holocaust. So he was always taught to hate Gentiles. And then somewhere around 1991, through a series of events, he got the opportunity to, he was in America, and he was invited to go to a uh, Christian church. He never thought he would ever do that. And he went to one that was, of all places, in New Braunfels, Texas, Now, New Braunfels is a German uh, colony that was founded back in the middle 1800s, but all these Germans are there. I mean, everybody there, they have big Oktoberfest there and all these German last names. And so, you know, he was thinking, here are all these Germans. Germans hate Jews. And what am I going to do here? And they just loved him to death and hugged him and were told him how much they loved Israel. And he had a major paradigm shift. So now his whole... uh, thing in life is he travels to the U.S. speaking to evangelical churches, and he believes that evangelicals are, the, are Israel's best friend, and he's been on a lot of, uh, we don't get these shows here for the most part, it's good that we don't get these shows here, but he's been on television shows with, with people like Zola Levitt, he's been on TBN, he's been on a lot of uh, national uh, radio, syndicated radio shows. Uh, he's spoken, I know there was a large prophecy conference in Fort Worth, that's Fort Worth, Texas, back in Labor Day, and people, uh, like Hal Lindsey, Tommy Ice, uh, Randy Price, uh, other friends of mine were on the, uh, also speaking there, as was he. So I got some good reports on him there. He hangs around all these, uh, Charismatic and semi-charismatic Christians all the time that he's picked up all the lingo. So he sounds, you listen to him, and you go, how can this guy not be a believer? But he's not a believer. And I also think that it's important to remember that he does have a mission. He is a member of the Israeli Defense League, is the Jewish Army. And he is a member of the Jewish Army, and he is basically recruiting support for Israel. So it's important to kind of keep that floating around in the back of your minds when you listen to him. Don't take every single thing he says as gospel truth. But he says a tremendous amount of interesting things and gives a totally new perspective on what is going on. When you listen to him, you will think that that he said these things after September 11th. What he says will happen after the terrorist act. He, he's been saying for five years that there will be a major terrorist event in the U.S. and what he said would happen that is exactly what's happened I mean his, his uh, prescience is incredible and he, uh, I think he has some fascinating and thought provoking things to say each video is an hour and a half long we will start them promptly at 7.30 they will be shown we'll be able to hook the uh, VCR up to the projector and it will, so everybody will get a good big image, large image projected up there so everybody can see it and hear well. And incidentally, Jim, the the cord that goes in there has two things, and the one I don't have plugged in is the sound. So we don't normally use that. But that is something you don't want to miss. I I found them all to be fascinating. There's uh, actually six videos. Each an hour and a half long, making up nine hours, but I've only picked out three to show because there's a certain amount of repetition, and so that gives you the uh, main idea. So that will be standard procedure. Prayer meeting will still be at 7 o'clock, and that will serve for uh, Bible class at 7.30. Okay. Well, before we get started in our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so let's bow our heads together. Have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have. We thank you for the leadership we have in the nation that is guiding and directing uh, us during this time of crisis, this time of war with terrorism, we pray that you would continue to give the uh, president wisdom as he leads the nation, to give the other leaders in his cabinet as well as the military leaders wisdom as they uh, set forth strategy, as they determine what to do next. We pray for our enemies, that they might be defeated and destroyed by our military. We pray that they would make mistakes. We pray that we would be able to find bin Laden and the others who are at the head of Al-Qaeda, and that we might be able to uh, remove them from the face of the earth. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us tonight as we study your word, that we might understand your plan and purposes in human history and see how you work behind the scenes raising up nations and, and destroying nations and how you are working all things to uh, ultimately bring about your glory in, the, in, in human history and to glorify yourself in the angelic conflict. We pray that we might be challenged by the things we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we are studying an important section in Daniel as we come to Daniel chapter 7. Now, this is a rugged section for some of you because many of you don't have a great appreciation for history. or You were never taught history very well. And the problem with the way history is taught in most secular classrooms, most of your high school classrooms... In college classrooms is it ends up being a lot of dates and a lot of facts and primarily at the elementary level up through high school. The purpose is really to give people sort of a, a framework, but unfortunately it's taught in, uh, not too effective manner. And part of that is due to the fact that coming from a secular, secular orientation, there's no real over, understanding of an overriding purpose or meaning in history. Sure, they will teach philosophies of history, and they will teach from a certain theoretical basis that, that the basic uh, overriding cause, causation in history is either economics or geography or socioeconomic issues or politics or some other aspect. But remember, from a Christian viewpoint, all of those elements that are usually emphasized as the major uh, element in history whether it could be the military you have military history it can be any number of facets those are all part of creation and we have to think biblically about that that remember in Romans 1 we're told that fallen man rejects the creator and substitutes the worship of the creature and creation so all of those things ge- geography socio-economic pa- uh, facets agriculture uh, mercantilism military events all of those are things that belong down down in the arena of, of the creation. And what happens whenever you take one of those things and elevate it up and make it the one factor that controls everything else is you're just another form of idolatry. It's another form of taking one element of the creation and using it to replace God. And in a secular society where we've taken God out of the picture and God is no longer there to give meaning And definition to human history, then something else within history takes God's place and moves into that vacuum. And the result is that people really have—I think—at the very core of man, uh, he—he's designed to have a relationship with God. And there's something skeptical about all these fascinating theories about, like Marxism and uh, Hegel's view of history and other uh, historiographical principles and so people just get bored I mean the details no longer have meaning anymore and so history becomes irrelevant I think that's Satan's assault on history because history from God's perspective is one of the most crucial studies because history is his story it is the outworking of God's plan and in order to really understand what's happening in Daniel 7 through 12 we have to have a grasp at least a A basic framework of understanding of ancient history. If you don't understand ancient history, you can't understand and appreciate what Daniel and what God is revealing through Daniel in Daniel 7 through 12. It just isn't going to happen. In fact, uh, Dan had called me this afternoon and he's just wrapping up his semester and we were talking about that and he said that that's exactly what one of his professors had said. And, of course, he just finished this semester in Jeremiah. That if you don't understand the history of the ancient world during that time, you cannot have a grasp on what these prophets are teaching Israel. So we have to do that kind of heavy, detailed, isagogical instruction, which I know for some of you just puts you right to sleep. But others of you find it fascinating, so hopefully we can make it less, less dreadful. But... Again and again and again as we walk our way through Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9 and get into Daniel 10, 11 and 12 where we get really bogged down into the politics and history of the Seleucid Empire which trust me I don't think anybody here ever heard about in high school or college history. Uh, as we get into that, if we don't have this framework down, we will just be lost. So it's fascinating to look at how God gives the overview here in chapter 7, and we deal with all four kingdoms. And then in chapter 8, it narrows down. Chapter 9, it narrows and begins to focus more on Israel. And in 10 and 11 and 12, it, it, the, the focus gets narrower and narrower. So we start with the broad and the general and get the overview and then move into more and more detailed studies. Now, as we get into Daniel 7, let's just review the first six verses very quickly. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night. Behold, the four winds of heaven. We saw that refers to angelic forces. This imagery, wind, see the imagery in prophetic literature It's not just imagery that people come in and go, well, I think this could mean that, or I think uh, winds could be uh, this thing, or sea could mean that thing. It's not that kind of subjective interpretation. The scriptures are clear. These same symbols, as we're going to see, are used over and over again in Ezekiel and Zechariah. In uh, Revelation, and so it's clear that the four winds of heaven, as we studied them, refer to angelic forces, primarily demonic forces, as they are exercising their influence under the sovereignty of God on the mass of fallen humanity, and that's what the great sea referred to is the mass of fallen humanity. And we made the point that in the sixth century B.C., something phenomenal was happening in the angelic conflict, as these angelic powers seem to be these demonic powers. ...are unleashed on human history to begin to move things. And then they produce a series of empires that are presented as beasts. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea, and the beast image represents man at his worst. That man, when he is in rebellion against God, dominated by the sin nature, operating on arrogance, is a beast. He's an animal. This is not a complimentary view of mankind and some of the leaders of some of these nations, the leaders who are at the forefront of these nations were people who were wonderful people they were kind, they were in in some cases generous, they were uh, magnificent men of integrity and yet God says they were beasts, they were animals because they are operating on human arrogance. Verse 4 The first is like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And that's a description of Nebuchadnezzar's regeneration that took place at the end of his reign over Babylon when he, uh, God, God disciplined him and then removed him from power. He spent seven years as an animal. And at the end, he recognized the power and sovereignty of God. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. So he moved from a lion to a bear. Uh, the bear is has agility and power. It was raised up on one side, indicating the superiority of the Persians over the Medes. Three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, "Arise and devour much meat." And that is the expansion of the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse six. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given. Now, verse 3 says these four beasts were coming up from the sea. Verse 17 gives the interpretation. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings, or four powers who will arise in the earth. The first is a lion with wings like an eagle. This was a standard symbol in Babylon. This is a map showing the basic expanse of the Babylonian empire, if we look here, this is Babylon, right located right here where this red dot is. And if we move up the, uh, I think this is the Euphrates River here, uh, if we move up the Euphrates to just about where I have that arrow pointing below the um, the lake there, that's where modern Baghdad is located. And one of the great debates that I haven't fully resolved yet in my own thinking is whether or not the Babylon, the Babylon pictured in Revelation 17 and 18, is a, merely a symbol that is a reference to Rome, or whether it is a that during the tribulation there will be a literal restoration of the city of Babylon. And uh, more and more studies are being done, and uh, it's interesting that more and more dispensational scholars have been moving to a position that it is a literal Babylon that will be restored. There's fascinating evidence there, and eventually we'll get around to studying that particular issue. So the lion with the wings of an eagle represents the head of gold in the statue in Daniel chapter 2. The second was the bear, which it represents the media persian empire as described in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, and chapter 8, verse 20. Verse 5 Behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And in that expansion, they defeated, the Persians defeated Lydia, which is in the western part of Turkey, modern Turkey, the Medes, and Chaldea. And this led to a major problem that we began to study last time, it created a military situation between the Persians and the Greeks because the Greek had colonists on that western shore of of, uh, Asia Minor or Turkey. And this brings the problem of the leopard, which is the third beast. After this, I kept looking, and and this is verse 6, After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So this is the fourth beast, and relates to the male goat in chapter 8, verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And then in verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the four horns were replaced. The one that was broken off, the one broken off was Alexander, as we studied last time, replaced by four kingdoms that emerged from his kingdom as it was divided between four of his generals. Now, here we have a map of the ancient world at that time. The area shaded in green is the, uh, in green here, and sort of this aqua color all the way down to Egypt was really the Media Persia Empire. They did conquer the Lydian Empire, the western half of Turkey here, but along the coast in towns like Sardis, Ephesus, and on down along the Mediterranean were various Greek colonies. Right about where that D is in Sardis was where Troy was located of the famed Trojan Wars as described in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And when those colonies rebelled against, uh, Cyrus, uh, Cyrus or Darius, excuse me, Darius' Staspes, then he sent out a few, um, of his, uh, sent out an army to assault them. Now, that occurred, we saw that last time, that in the, as the bear was gobbling up territory, uh, Darius wanted to take on the Greeks, so he took his army, And 490 B.C., he invaded across the Hellespont here and invaded through Thrace and then down the Greek peninsula. This peninsula just north of Athens here is Eritrea. And then Athens was to the south, and that's where they had the major battles. And right out here about where that inn is in Athens is where Marathon is located. And it was at Marathon that the Greeks defeated the Persians who retreated to their ships and tried to do an end run by coming around this lower peninsula and up into the bay. But the Athenians did a forced march, got back to Athens, and defeated the Persians. So that's the first invasion of the Persians under Darius. Then the second invasion we studied last time was under Xerxes. And ten years later, in 480, he invaded with a navy and an army, there was a massive proportions. The Navy had 3,000 transport ships and 1,000 warships. And the, the uh, army, according to Herodotus, was up to 2 million. Now, those numbers are a little suspect, but uh, allegedly he had an army of 2 million. And as he came down the Greek peninsula here, he had a, to funnel his way through Thermopylae Pass, where they had a very famous battle and were defeated by the by uh, uh, were being defeated because they all had to funnel down through a very narrow gorge and 300 Spartans under King Leonidas, so the Spartans were defeating them until a traitor told, uh, the Persians of a back way and the Persians went around behind them and wiped out the Spartans. Extremely famous battle and then one of the most decisive battles in all of human history and then their navy came around this back in this bay and at Salamis there was another uh, famous uh, naval battle, and at that point the Persians had their navy wiped out, and they went home with their uh, tail tucked between their legs. That, of course, set things up for a hundred years later when uh, Alexander came to power over over Greece, that he um, united the Greek city-states and developed the um, developed the strategy and tactics of the greek phalanx which was usually about six or eight rows across and about or six or eight rows deep and about 12 men across and his father philip was quite brilliant and at the battle of leuctra had noticed that that phalanxes tended to to move to the right you see every greek soldier carried his his shield on his right hand and he carried his sword i mean he carried his shield on his left hand and his sword on his right hand and he had another hoplite another soldier to his right and that hoplite's shield on his left side was supposed to protect him. So the tendency is that you've got your shield here and you're wanting to make sure you're behind the guy's shield to your right. So there's a tendency for the the phalanx as it's moving across the field to kind of veer to the right. Well, well they noticed that and, and Philip noticed that. and So what he developed was a reinforced phalanx where they put four or five more rows just on the back left side so that as they move forward across the field and one phalanx is angling to the right and the other one is angling to their right and you hit just at the angle he would tend to move them he picked this up from the Spartans that he would move and hit them hit fast and really accelerate the or exaggerate the shift to the right so that he'd clip them right on the corner and then he'd have this reinforced left side and then they would do an oblique left and hit the other phalanx from the left and wipe them out. And so Alexander picked that up and used that to wipe out every army in the uh, ancient world because they had no clear defense for that. And that's important for understanding a few things about the development of Roman tactics, which we'll get to in a minute. But last time we saw that in Alexander's campaign, there were four major battles that relate to the four wings, the battle at uh, Granicus, which is located where this number two is, that's Granicus, then the Battle of Isis, then the Battle of Arbella, and then his battles over along the eastern side of the empire on the Indus River. And through those four major battles, he gained control of the Persian Empire and more in a period of uh, ten years, from 333 B.C. until his death in 323 B.C. So that is the speed of the leopard, the speed of his conquest. Then when he died, his empire is divided up between four generals. Cassander took over Greece. Lysimachus took over Thrace and part of Asia Minor. Seleucus took over Syria and the majority of the Persian Empire, which he later lost to the Parthians. And then the Ptolemies took Egypt and Palestine. Now that area around Israel... Uh, was kind of a buffer between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north and so they were constantly fighting over Israel right in here and it went back and forth from one empire to another. That is about where we stopped last time and this time we're going to look at the fourth empire which is the Roman Empire in Daniel 7 verse 7. See now you have a great understanding and you had a good review. You understand a little bit about Persian and Greek history, and that gives you a little understanding why we run marathons and call them marathons. Is because from Athens to Marathon was whatever it was, 26 and a half miles, and the run they made, it, or one soldier made a run there to warn them about the uh, Persians doing an end run around the city, and that's why we run marathons today. That's you didn't just come up with the word out of English. For those of you who were educationally challenged and didn't didn't know that. Verse 7. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled. Now, that's not an accurate translation. Notice it translates those as finite past tense verbs, and they are participles in the Aramaic. It was devouring and crushing and trampling. See, you change it to participles, you've got energy and power operating here. And that's the picture of the, this is like an enormous machine that's just chewing up territory and, and chewing up people. It's devouring, crushing, trampling down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, this is important, a little horn came up among the ten, among them, that is among the ten, and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, we're not going to get all of that covered this evening. We're just going to barely get started on understanding this fourth beast tonight, and we'll have to cover the rest of it when I get back from uh, Ukraine. Now, I want you to notice some things about this particular beast. It's described, there, there are six characteristics given about this beast, and uh, let's uh, list them. First of all, it's said to be dreadful and terrible. Second, it's exceedingly strong. That means its strength, its power, its military might exceeds that of its predecessors. Third, it has enormous iron teeth. Fourth, it's devouring, crushing, and trampling, its continuous action. Uh, fifth, it has claws of bronze, as described in verse 19, which we'll look at in just a minute. It is said to be different from all the previous beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, the, the um, are there are seven points there. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Third, enormous iron teeth. Fourth, it dev- was devouring, crushing, and trampling. Fifth, it had claws of bronze. Sixth, it's different from all the previous beasts. And seventh, it had ten horns. Now, what made it different from the previous beasts? Two things. The previous beasts are all natural. I mean, you may not see them in nature, but you know what wings of eagles are, and you know what a lion looks like. You know what a bear looks like. You know what a leopard looks like. You've never seen a four headed leopard with four wings, but you know what those look like. Wings occur in nature. But you never see an animal with teeth of iron and claws of bronze. See, what's introduced there are man made elements. Iron and bronze both have to be smelted, and both are products of man-made processes. So there is something special, a, let's just call it an unknown X-factor, that makes this beast particularly ferocious, and it's the introduction of something that is man-made and, and distinguishes this, this beast from all of the other beasts. Now, in Daniel 7.19, we're told, Daniel says, Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. So he doesn't just contemplate his navel and try to figure out what the fourth beast could possibly mean. He doesn't consult um, uh, various works of literature. He turns to the angel that is standing there to get specific information because Daniel knows that it's designed to communicate. See, God doesn't give these symbols to... To obfuscate or cloud the meaning, he gives these symbols in order to teach certain things through the symbols, and he wants them to be clearly understood. So Daniel says here, "I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze." There. Verse 19 gives us that new information. And which was devouring, crushing, and trampling down the remainder with its feet. Verse 20. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. The he said here refers to the angel. The angel. The Malach, the messenger from God who is interpreting this to Daniel. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms. So there is something about this fourth kingdom that is, distinguishes it from all the other kingdoms. We have to figure out what that is. And it will devour the whole earth. So it is going to have a universal control. Devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Tremendously powerful verbs are used here to, to illustrate the, the uh, power and the strength of this fourth kingdom. As for the ten horns, the angel says in verse 24, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. Now, in the early years in the ancient world and uh, sometimes in the Middle Ages, crowns were made out of horns. You can think about the helmets that Vikings wore with horns coming out of them. Those horns. They they would take horns and they would uh, create a a, a helmet or, or some type of hat. And that was the early form of a crown. So when we think of a crown today, you think of a crown that has these pointed things on it. That is just a stylized version of the ancient crowns which were made from horns. And so the horn is used as a symbol of power and the symbol of a kingdom. So these ten horns represent ten kings or kingdoms that will arise, future tense. At the time Daniel writes, they are future to Daniel. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and then another will arise after them. Notice the order. This is important to understand what happens at the beginning of the tribulation. Ten kingdoms are going to arise, and then another one after them. So first you have this ten-nation confederacy, and then there's an eleventh king that arises after that. And he's different from the previous kings, and he is going to subdue through military conquest three of those other ten kings. This takes place in the early stages of the tribulation, because the Antichrist isn't revealed until after the rapture. So in the early stages of the tribulation, in order to consolidate his power over the revived Roman Empire, he is going to subdue three of these ten kings and consolidate that, that power. Verse 25 characterizes him in terms of his religious orientation. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. We'll investigate that, and we'll see that that means three and a half years. So this is talking about what he is doing in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But the court will sit for judgment, and excuse me, that's the second half of the tribulation. He's consolidated his power, and now he is assaulting the saints, that is, tribulation saints, seeking to destroy them in the second half of the tribulation. And then in verse 26, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Now, the fact that this fourth beast has the iron teeth is so unusual, and struck Daniel is so unusual, that he has to get uh, extra information from from the angel that's in attendance. So he, he asks the angel, and the angel gives him the information and begins to explain what all of this means in verses 23 through 25. So this is the authoritative information about given from the angel in terms of interpreting what's going on here. Now, there are several different interpretations offered for these ten horns. First of all, there's the liberal interpretation. And the liberal interpretation seeks to make all of this history. So for the liberal, the Ten Horns, they try to squeeze this into the Greek Empire, not the Roman Empire, because I briefly touched on this. You may not remember it, but it briefly covered the fact that the liberals want all of this to be history. So the first kingdom's Babylon, the second kingdom's a Median kingdom, third kingdom's a Persian kingdom, and the fourth kingdom is Greece. But there never was an independent Median kingdom. So they, there's no historical support for the liberal view on that. And they, but by adopting their position, they have to make, with their typical ram, cram, and jam type of inter- hermeneutics and interpretation, they have to make these ten horns symbolic of something related to the Greeks. But nobody's been able to do that because there's nothing in Greek history that relates to ten. There aren't any any ten powers or ten city-states or anything like that, and so it can't relate to the Seleucids or the Ptolemies. Remember, the Greek Empire is broken into four segments, and that easily relates to Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and uh, the Seleucids. But there's nothing that relates to, to ten. So the liberal position just doesn't fit history at all, but that doesn't bother the liberals because they don't think the Bible has anything to do with reality anyway. Then there's our millennial and postmillennial friends, our Calvinistic Reformed crowd who wants to ignore the fact or deny the fact that there's a literal millennium in the future. And in order to do that, they have to make these ten horns relate to something in the church. This last this is the last kingdom in Daniel two is the church, and so they have to make these ten horns relate to something um. And the church and of course there's nothing uh, that these ten horns therefore have to be in the past and they have to be something that occurred uh, has already occurred before the church age and yet there's nothing in history that corresponds to the ten horns so this is something if you 're ever in a discussion with somebody who uh, has trouble believing in a pre millennial coming of Christ, you can always take them to the ten horns and try to get them to figure out what those ten horns refer to now what happens in verse 8 is that this little horn comes along and he is going to displace or destroy three of them so that now there are only eight really eight powers but he takes over the these eight powers and he wages a war in verses 21 through 25 against the saints now these the term saint Can refer to either an Old Testament saint, a Church Age believer, or a Tribulation believer. Saint does not have to is not necessarily a term restricted to the Church Age. So you have to determine which era this is talking about. And of course, if they if the liberals want to make this history, then they try to identify this with Antiochus Epiphanes when he tried to destroy the Jews in the second century. The problem is they can't figure out what the ten horns would refer to at that particular time. Not only that, but as we look at the scriptures uh, in Revelation, Daniel uses this same, I mean, excuse me, John picks up on this same imagery in Daniel chapter 17. We'll come back next time and look at Daniel 13 because he sees a description of the beast and the Antichrist that comes up in Daniel 13.1 as composing a body like a lion, the uh, power of a bear, and the speed of a leopard. Now, how can you interpret that if you don't understand Daniel 7? You can't. And so this becomes the background. Now, in Daniel 17.1 we read, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. That's the system of the Antichrist with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. Now doesn't that sound familiar? See to understand Revelation 17 you have to understand Daniel 7 because here we see the seven heads which are the Ten horns minus the three that are destroyed, and there are ten horns. There's still ten nations, but there's only really only seven heads that are left. And then we skip down in Daniel 17, uh, excuse me, in Revelation 17 to verse 12. And when John wrote Revelation in approximately 92 A.D., the these ten horns were yet future. See the Amel. Has a problem with that, and the post mill, especially the new preterist crowd. Now, that's a term that uh, isn't one you use a lot, but preterist means past. And when Tommy was here three years ago, he did a whole lecture on preterism, and this is gaining steam, where there are those who, uh, theologians, who are teaching that all, all or, the, or at least the majority of prophetic events in Matthew 24 and Revelation occurred at 70 AD that all of those prophecies in Revelation and, and in uh, Matthew 24 were simply allegorical uh, messages related to the destruction of Israel and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and there are numerous problems with preterism not the least of which is they operate on a non-literal interpretation but when uh, John wrote Revelation see one of the things they have to do is make the writing of Revelation much earlier than it has been traditionally uh, set up. And and the Revelation is traditionally viewed as having been written about 92 to 94 A.D. And now they're trying to say, no, it was really written about 60 A.D. And that would refer then everything in Revelation would be related to uh, events around uh, Titus's invasion of Israel in 70 A.D. So this is a major battle right now among, uh, among scholars in the realm of eschatology. And one of the uh, younger guys who's a member of the pre-trib rapture study group where I was last week is writing his Ph.D. dissertation at Dallas Seminary on the uh, date of the book of Revelation, which we're all looking forward to uh, with much anticipation because he is going to uh, really nail down some some issues for us in this ongoing battle. Now, we miss that out here, but every time I go to these meetings, apparently in the real world out there, outside of New England, uh, where people have, uh, uh, at least outside of southeastern Connecticut, where people have Trinity Broadcasting Network and all the other idiot, heretical uh, Christian broadcasting systems, and they get... Christian radio, there are major battles over this apparently going on in the Christian talk shows and Christian radio and you have major speakers like R.C. Sproul who has got a national or international ministry and radio ministry and he's now teaching a preterist view as are many others. So we miss out on some of the fun here so I just have to let you know that in case uh, someday you ever slip out of this little enclave and you run into some of this. And not to mention the fact that we probably have a bunch of tapers out there who are hearing it and need a little ammunition in their day-to-day battle. So in Revelation 17.12 John wrote, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. So this is yet future in Revelation 7.12 and our 17:12 and in Revelation 17:25 uh, tw- uh, we're told, and he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alter—excuse me, this should be labeled Daniel 7:25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. So this is clearly speaking of the operation of the little horn, who is the Antichrist. And when I get back from Ukraine, we'll do a study of the little horn and comparing him with the beast in Revelation. But right now, we just have to look at the historical aspect of the fourth beast as Rome. And before we do that, we need to introduce it with three questions we need to somehow answer in our study of Rome. First of all, we look back at this beast. He has teeth of iron and claws of bronze. That's a man made factor introduced into this empire, and we need to determine what that might be. So the first question is what is the man made, the man madeness, the man made X factor of the fourth kingdom? What is the man made X factor of the fourth kingdom picture in the uh, human refined iron teeth and in the uh, humanly refined bronze claws. That's something completely different from what we find in the earlier kingdoms. So what's the X factor pictured in the iron and the bronze? Second question. How did Rome act differently? Because There's an emphasis made on the fact that this kingdom is different from the other kingdoms. How did Rome act differently from the three earlier kingdoms, such that it is pictured as being dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, devouring and crushing the whole earth and treading it down? Let me suggest something as a hint. This is not going to be military as much as it's going to be ideological or theological, because the scriptures always address this more from an ideological perspective than a military perspective. Something in their thinking is going to make them terrible. And then third, since the ten kings of the fourth kingdom of Daniel 7 are yet future to our time, and we in the 21st century are still within the time period of the fourth kingdom of Daniel 2-7, we should be able to discern this man-made feature X. So what is it? Well, let's take a little overview of the Roman Empire. Roman history in 10 minutes or less. See, we're just going to hit the high points. We're going to hit more detail later, but if you don't, I mean, I've studied Roman history a lot over the years, and it's hard to nail things like this down if you just don't have the basic broad outline. So that's all we're going to do is just try to give you a basic broad outline of Roman history so that as we come back later and teach more details, you can have something to organize all the details with. There are five or four periods that we're going to look at. The first is the pre-Civil War period. The pre-Civil War period, this is the period up to about 60 to 75 B.C. The pre-Civil War period, and this period is roughly analogous to the time in our history of the colonial era up to the Revolutionary War. It's the time when the old Romans, the old patricians would look back and say, those were really the good old days when we were primarily Etruscans astride the seven hills of Rome and we weren't concerned about world affairs. We didn't dominate the Mediterranean. We just took care of things in our own, own backyard and life was really good. These were the good old days. During this time militarily, Roman strategy and tactics was not much different from the Greek uh, strategy and tactics. They had a heavily armed infantry, which was the backbone of their army. Now that becomes important in a minute. They stressed the infantry, and they usually marched into battle accompanied by music. And they had six or eight rows along a solid front line. So they continued to use the the basic phalanx of the Greeks. The army was made up of 193 units called centuries. And they basically, the first 18 centuries included all those who could afford horses and armor. And they were called the equites of the cavalry. This would be equivalent to the ninth in the Roman Empire these were the aristocracy of Rome those who had wealth who could afford to outfit themselves well and then as you went to the next group of 30 or 40 centuries they were infantry they couldn't afford horses but they had better weapons and better armor than the next group of centuries and so by the time you got down to the last 20 or 30 centuries they weren't very well outfitted and uh, they were made up with, with the lower elements of society so the leaders of the of the, uh, the leaders were called consuls. The leaders of the army were, were consuls, and under them were military tribunes. And each citizen was required to serve in the military for 10 years. So everybody had, there was universal military service for, for, from 10 years from the time you were about 15 till you were 25. That's the early pre Civil War period, and then there are the days of expansion. From uh, roughly, we can there's some fudge factor here, overlap depending on how you periodize things, but from about um, uh, roughly a little before 100, uh, uh, this would be 250 to 150. The earlier period is before 250 BC. This period would roughly run from 250. To um, 150 to 100 BC, depending on how you break it down, and this would cover the Punic Wars with Carthage. Now, about the beginning of this period, I think I said the pre-Civil War period. This should really be the pre-pre-expansion uh, period. The the first one should be called the pre-expansion um, early days, Etruscan the period. Then the second period is the days of expansion. And uh, at this time, at the beginning of this period. The period of expansion, uh, the tactics changed. They reorganized the army into what they called maniples. And each maniple was made up of two equal size centuries. And they would organize them on a battlefield so it looked like a checkerboard. And they would set up three maniples across the front line looking something like this. Um, My with a hole here and a hole here and then you'd have reserved maniples in the rear like that and this allowed them to spread out to left and right if they needed to and it also enabled them to be flexible from front to rear and to move these other mani- the maniples in the rear off to the left or the right in order to reinforce your front line maniples so it gave them a tremendous amount of flexibility and with that Rome was able to uh, roll over just about every opposing force once they got their act together. Now, about the time they're developing that, there was, they had to deal with a major empire that was down south called Carthage. Now, the Carthaginians were Greeks. They were descendants of the old Phoenicians and Greek Sea Peoples. They were related to the Philistines and Phoenicians that had settled and colonized on the coast of, of Israel. And they were... Uh, uh, pushing forward into Europe. The Carthaginians had crossed over uh, into Spain. They had defeated all of the armies there, which were the ancient, uh, whatever the ancient people were in Spain at that time. They had defeated them under the leadership of Hannibal. Hannibal Barca was uh, well-trained by his father, Hamilcar, and he wanted to t- defeat Rome and take over Italy. So he did an in run. He headed north. He crossed the Pyrenees, and then he headed back around to the uh, east crossed the Alps and came into Italy from the north and he was defeating the Romans and just uh, wiping them out and everything they threw against him he would defeat them because he had brought his elephants with him and he was heavy on cavalry and the cavalry could take out the infantry without any problem but there was a young Uh, Roman general by the name of Scipio who realized that if you're going to ever win you have to take the battle to the enemy. You have to go on the offensive so he put together a Roman army and they sailed across the Mediterranean and headed for Carthage and as soon as uh, Hannibal heard that he had to get out of Italy and head for home as quick as he could and he didn't get there in time and so Scipio defeated Hannibal and they completely wiped out Carthage. Now at the same time the Carthaginians and the Greeks had done something very foolish. The, uh, the heirs of Cassander in Macedon and in Greece had, uh, were fairly weak, and they, they were feeling the pressure of this expanding Roman power. So they had entered into an alliance with Carthage. They had bet on Hannibal, and they figured if Hannibal took out the Romans, then they were going to be in great shape. But Hannibal lost to the Romans, and because the Greeks were allied to uh, the Carthaginians, they were now the enemies of Rome and Rome wasn't going to stand for that so now Rome looked eastward and said well we're going to have to destroy the Greeks. So at this point Rome headed east conquered Greece and then they had to go around and wipe out the other colonies the other Greek, Greek colonies the Seleucid dynasty and the, then head down to Egypt and take out the Ptolemies. And so when it was all over with all of a sudden Rome woke up one day and the Mediterranean had become a Roman lake. Now, they didn't set out for world conquest, but that was all the, sort of the result of the uh, Punic Wars. That, that's the technical name for the wars with Carthage. Then you have the period of the Roman Civil Wars, the Ro- period of the Roman Civil Wars, where you have Julius Caesar coming back from uh, his conquest of Gaul and uh, Britannia. And he is uh, told not to come back to Rome, so he took his army and he defeated the other major Roman army in the field over in Spain. And then together they marched on Rome, and he had himself appointed as emperor. Now, he was really a populist who was catering to the masses. And as usual, whenever you have any politician who is spouting phrases where they're going to give more power more money to the people usually more power and more money ends up in their pockets. so always watch out for the populace so he is uh, he becomes uh, emperor and then he is assassinated by Brutus and Cassius and uh, that crowd which began a civil war between Octavius on the one hand Mark Antony and the others and that went on for a several years until Octavius, the nephew of Caesar, uh, defeated Brutus and Mark Antony and Augustus became the emperor. And this occurs in 30, a, uh, 30 BC and Augustus Caesar is a brilliant man, a genius, who redefines Rome and establishes, he basically establishes the constitution of Rome and the political organization of Rome, which enables Rome to survive for almost a thousand years. I mean, the residual effects of this one genius are incredible because of the way he structured the empire. So one question we have to ask here as we arrive at this point in history is can we point to something ...unique that happens at this time that makes the Roman Empire different. And the first real signal to this is what happens under under Augustus. Because he is going to establish a new kind of administration. He single-handedly establishes the empire... And uh, it's based on his own character. Now, Augustus himself is not a tyrant. He was not a cruel man. In fact, he seems to have been a very generous individual with the, with the empire. He um, uh, could be compared to certain politicians of our own day who are very charismatic and who seem to uh, never have any negative criticism stick to them and are always thought of as being very kind and wonderful people Uh, Dr. Merrill C. Tinney writes of Augustus very perceptively he says the cessation of the bitter civil wars that had distressed Rome for nearly a century inaugurated a welcome peace the moderation and sagacity of Augustus fostered confidence in his rule he spared the lives of all his opponents who asked for pardon he's generous, he's gracious, he's magnanimous He refrained from the wholesale slaughter of his enemies in which his predecessors had indulged, so he's not bloodthirsty. Augustus even demilitarized the empire to satisfy all the pacifists by discharging 300,000 soldiers from the army and settling them in their own colonies and in their own towns. In times of economic stress, he paid for free grain out of his own pocket for the people. That'll get you a few votes. He erected numerous public buildings at his own expense. He reformed the laws concerning adultery and usury and strengthened the laws regarding the the establishment of the family. He enforced a just assessment of taxes. He improved the organization of the government. The catalog of his numerous achievements carved in the wall of a temple in Turkey credits him with the erection of 14 temples, restoration of 82 public buildings, together with the construction of extensive aqueducts and roads. That spells jobs. Piracy and brigandage which had flourished in the last disorganized days of the Republic and Civil War were firmly repressed. A salutary esprit corps sprang up in the empire so that people began to pride themselves on being Romans and to become conscious of a new unity in the world. Now listen to the words of a letter written by a retired uh, army commander about uh, Augustus to show what people thought of him in his day. This uh, retired soldier says there's nothing that man can desire from the gods, nothing that the gods can grant to man, nothing that wish can conceive or good fortune bring to pass, which Augustus on his return to the city did not bestow upon the commonwealth. Notice his comparison to the gods. The, uh, the civil war was ended, foreign wars were suppressed, peace was reestablished, the frenzy of conflict everywhere lulled to rest. VALIDITY WAS RESTORED TO THE LAW, AUTHORITY TO THE COURTS, PRESTIGE TO THE SENATE, THE POWER OF THE MAGISTRATES WAS REDUCED TO ITS FORMER LIMITS, THE TRADITIONAL FORM OF THE REPUBLIC WAS REVIVED, AGRICULTURE RETURNED TO THE FIELDS, RESPECT TO RELIGION, TO mankind's SECURITY OF POSSESSIONS, ALL LAWS WERE CAREFULLY AMENDED, NEW LEGISLATION ENACTED FOR THE GENERAL GOOD, THE SENATORIAL PANEL WAS RIGOROUSLY IF NOT DRASTICALLY REVISED, The dictatorship which the people persisted in offering him, he persistently refused. He was a good guy. It was a golden age in the Roman Empire, and he refused to be a dictator. He gave power back to the Senate. But in its place was the deification of the emperor. See, what Augustus did was he took something... That the, that the Greeks had developed under Aristotle and Plato. They were interested in developing the city-state, what made good government. And he took the results of a political thought developed in Greece and he wedded it to a Roman concept of law as absolute. But law that doesn't come from God as the creator outside of creation It means that it comes from some authority in creation that supplants God or replaces God in the process. And that always happens. If you reject God as the source of absolutes, something is going to take his place. So what takes the place of God is the government. And the government becomes the ultimate reference point for values and absolutes. And that is what makes Rome, the development in Rome, so terrible. And we see that played out through the history of Western civilization is this constant fight and struggle between the church and the authority of God and the state that seeks to be the ultimate arbiter and decider of power. And that's what's going to end up happening in the... Uh, tribulation when the Antichrist sets himself up as a god he will deify himself and he will be the ultimate uh, determiner of values and of absolutes so what, what really went to seed with Nero and Caligula as they were also viewed as, as gods was the result of what uh, Augustus had begun and it's the deification of the state So in conclusion, let's answer those questions real quick. First of all, what's the man-made factor in the fourth kingdom? And that is that the Roman Empire is the first empire in history that publicly admits that man is the source of absolutes and law, that human reason is the source of law rather than dreams in a temple or uh, some sort of God-revealed law code. It is man's reason, his own abilities that generates law. Second question was, how did Rome act differently from the other three earlier kingdoms? And that was in the way that the Roman Empire devoured and crushed the whole earth and controlled the earth through their administration of law. Such that after Christianity, remember it is in the time of Augustus that Jesus Christ is born. Everything here points to the birth of Jesus Christ as God works these empires. We're told in Galatians 4.4 4, that it was in the fullness of time that Jesus Christ was born. So it's in this Pax Augustus, in this in this golden age under Augustus, that Jesus Christ is born. And he becomes the competition the Caesar even though his kingdom is not of this world Christianity becomes uh, competitive with the deified Roman Empire at this point and this is why the uh, Roman uh, the Roman citizens had to bow down and say that Caesar was Lord and this is why there were so many persecutions of the Christians because it put their allegiance in direct conflict with allegiance to Caesar does law come from Caesar or does law come from God that's what made Rome different and then the third question we said since these ten kings of the fourth kingdom of Daniel 7 are still future for us as they were at the time, John wrote, can we see this same element in the world today? And let me just read to you one quote from Dewey, who was the founder, architect of much of the public education system, and in his book, A Common Faith, he articulates the same spirit that we find in ancient Rome. He wrote in that book, I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital moral and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without surrender of the conception of the basic human division to which Christianity is committed, namely the saved and the lost. Let me read that to you again. Dewey, the architect of the modern public education system in America, John Dewey, said in his book, A Common Faith, I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal, see, that's setting the democratic ideal up as the ultimate arbiter of truth. That replaces God. I cannot understand how any realization of the democratic ideal as a vital moral and spiritual ideal in human affairs is possible without surrendering the conception of the basic human division to which Christianity is committed, namely the saved and the lost. In other words, if you're going to have real success of democracy, you've got to do away with this Christian idea that some people are saved and some people are lost. You've got to do away with Christianity because Christianity is the enemy to democracy because it's a battle as to who the ultimate authority is. And that's what we have to understand. There is no such thing as neutrality. And this is what distinguishes the fourth kingdom, which in this intervening stage between the destruction of the Roman Empire and its resurrection as the revived Roman Empire is in advance. We still see these trends going on today because we in the West are the heirs to the old Roman Empire. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll compare the little horn to the beast. And in the next session, which will be in about four weeks, we will uh, get into some more doctrines that uh, that relate to the end times that are just fascinating. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word today, understanding of how all these events in human history are orchestrated by you to bring about the, the ultimate decision in the angelic conflict, which is your glorification and your vindication against the uh, charges and calumnies of Satan. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we look at current affairs, realizing that you are still very much in control. And no matter how chaotic things might seem, we know that you are still orchestrating the affairs of man to bring about your ultimate purposes. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.